It was a dreary morning. The rain was falling in buckets from the blackened sky in which billowing clouds were being driven along by the punishing west wind. We would therefore have headwind all the way. This is how a journalist, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines' very first Dutch passenger, described Tuesday the 18th of May 1920 as a rented single-engine biplane takes on its passengers on a wet, grassy field just outside Amsterdam. Passengers go in, yelled Shaw, our pilot. I got in, my heart racing. This KLM biplane is straining against the wind to take off and complete its first passenger crossing to London. This was to be a pioneering moment that helped lay the foundation for the entire industry of passenger aviation as we know it today. And it almost didn't happen. This show is not just the trip that changed everything, but the flight that changed everything. Hi, I'm Jonathan Gruber, and this is The Journey. The Journey is an original podcast by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. Usually, we meet people whose lives are transformed by travel, but in this special edition, we celebrate 100 years of KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. Let me take you back to that dreary May morning in 1920. The flight was the culmination of months of preparation. And now, finally, the moment had come. A KLM airplane would transport passengers to another part of the world faster than ever before. This happens nearly every minute nowadays. But that wasn't the case in 1920. One hundred years ago, Europe was still recovering from the horrors of World War I. But it was a time where you could feel the world changing, both socially and technologically. Horses and carriages were quickly being replaced by cars and trucks. Railways could now take you anywhere across the continent and beyond. And airplanes had advanced tremendously since the Wright brothers took their first flight in just the previous decade. Indeed, airplanes had found their purpose. And that purpose was war. Well, Europe was in the first years after the First World War, 1918 to 1920, a place that was scarred. This is Mark Dedix, a historian at the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences and the author of Blue in the Sky, A History of KLM. Europe was scarred by what the war had brought and even for people then, unimaginable destruction. And most countries involved in the war were very much trying to rebuild whatever that was rebuildable. Back in 1919, where our story starts, the Treaty of Versailles had just been signed. The Netherlands was neutral in World War I and was faring economically much better than the countries around it. But when it came to aviation, Holland was far behind. Their most modern planes had accidentally flown over the border during the war. Mark Dierick says Holland was, well, a backwater. But not a backwater in the economic sense of the word. There were quite a few entrepreneurs in the Netherlands around this time who were very much engaged in the modern era and were trying to invest in industries and services. 
that would take the country into the 20th century, basically. And one of those entrepreneurs is Albert Plessman. Plessman was one of seven children born to a Protestant egg dealer and bread delivery man in The Hague. He grew up to be a large man with big hands, shoulders, and a stubborn, determined character. At college, he had a clear talent for math, science, and sports, and almost no talent for languages. He enlisted in the Royal Dutch Marines as an officer and, as a lieutenant, was put in charge of that most Dutch of military detachments, the Bicycle Corps. And there he probably would have remained, had fate not intervened. He went to a demonstration of an aeroplane in The Hague in 1909, and that sort of captivated his imagination. Wouldn't it be fantastic if I could join the armed forces in the sky somehow and really fly these machines? But of course... The number of airplanes that the Dutch had, military airplanes, was very, very small. It was maybe about 10 for the whole Air Force. And in the summer of 1917, Albert Plessman made his flying license, although people later described him as a rather poor pilot. But at least it got him his opportunity to do something in the air and the fulfillment of a dream. A dream that saw Plessman circling endlessly around the Dutch border in unarmed, obsolete planes, around and around and around. In his boredom, Plessman began to dream of creating a modern military air force. He brought his ideas to his superior, General Snyders. General Snyder said, OK, I think it's a good idea because I love aviation as well, and I think it has a great future. This is Ron Wunderink. Mr. Wunderink is retired now, but he was KLM's Director of Communications for 43 years and recently wrote a book about KLM's earliest years. He says General Snyders was more than a military man. He was well-connected and drummed up enthusiasm for the idea of a modern air fleet amongst politicians, the merchant classes, and even the royal family. There was just one problem. The public. Most people didn't really like planes. They didn't trust them. Planes were a marvel, yes, but they were also weapons. They shoot, they drop bombs, or worse, they crash. They thought it was dangerous, but on the other hand, it gives also a sort of an adventure. In the early days of aviation, people flocked to air shows just to see somebody die. That was a very common occurrence. The attraction was to witness the airplanes flying around, and maybe, if you were, well, lucky is not quite the right expression, of course, but maybe somebody would actually crash and die. And this fascination with sudden death also made pilots into heroic people, because they dared the elements. Plessman and Snyders realized they needed to convince the public that planes were fun and safe. And so he created the ELTA, a Dutch acronym for the first aviation exhibition, Amsterdam. The idea was to build a spectacular air show. Plessman got plane builders from Italy, France and Germany to send over their most advanced models. The British were in too. (laughs) 
So, a muddy field in the north of Amsterdam was dried out, airstrips were laid down, catering facilities were set up, and the Elta was on. A person coming to the show could see lots of different airplanes from all over the place, from Germany, England, France. They could see demonstrations by foreign and Dutch pilots, and they could also fly themselves. You could pay 40 Dutch guilders, which was a lot of money at that time, and then you can go up with a plane. And hundreds of people did, because they were enormous enthusiastic about what they saw there as a new generation of transport. It's more than an air show because it lasted for a month. So it opened in August 1919 and went on till mid-September 1919 and attracted in that period in between a couple of hundred thousand spectators who arrived from all over the country just to witness something of this new and magical thing called aeroplanes. The Elta was a massive success. A half a million people had witnessed the spectacle of zooming airplanes that did not crash. Hundreds of them had flown in an airplane and loved it. Plessman had managed to convince the Dutch public about the safety, value and wonder of this amazing new technology. But this was all in the service of creating a modern air force, remember? Well, Mark Dierdick says that idea transformed into something else altogether. It got started because a group of entrepreneurs, chairmen of one of the larger banking companies in the country and a few of the larger trading companies, got together and decided that the moment had come to grab the opportunity that the technological state of aviation offered in 1919 by founding a company that would offer passenger and particularly postal services. The original concept of air power turned into air commerce, and prominent Dutch businessmen set about to explore the creation of one of the world's first commercial airlines. And so, on the 7th of October, on a sunny autumn morning, Eight bankers, shipping company owners, and other captains of industry met in a lawyer's office in The Hague to sign a certificate of incorporation for the creation of KLM, the Royal Dutch Airlines for the Netherlands and Colonies. They even convinced Queen Wilhelmina to allow the new company to call itself Royal. Normally, a company has to be in business for a century before they get to say that. A board of directors was formed, and one of the first things they did was to hire someone to manage it all. Their eyes fell on the young, daring lieutenant who so successfully helmed the Elta Airshow. Mr. Albert Plessman was not only a pilot, but he also could organize things. And that was the reason that General Snyders and his friends from banks and shipping companies said, if we form now, a aviation company, this guy must run the show. So they had an airline, they had an airline director, and you'd think that all they needed now was an airplane. But actually, they had a bigger problem. A massive problem. They weren't allowed to fly. The idea was that because flying was dangerous, you can drop things from an airplane, like a bomb, 
Therefore, you wanted to stop airplanes crossing the border because it's difficult to control airplanes once in the air. And therefore, air transportation in the treaty negotiated in 1919 was reserved for the Allied and Associated Powers in the First World War. So the British were allowed to fly, the French were allowed to fly, the Belgians were allowed to fly, but the Dutch, being neutral, had remained outside the scope of the war and also remained outside the scope of the treaty. So let's say that again. A treaty signed in Paris after World War I limited all international European air travel to Allied powers only. Because the Netherlands had been neutral in the war, they had no right to fly a plane outside their borders. This was a huge problem. And the way around the problem was the treaty provided for special incidental exclusions or allowances to operate a flight outside the normal treaty rules. There was just one route that they could go to under the treaty provisions, and that was London, because the British were the only ones who allowed this strange neutral airline to operate to their country. And the British government made this exception because not only would the first flight be to Britain, but the airplane, well, that would be British too. KLM paid £37 sterling to rent an Airco DH-16. The DH stands for Geoffrey de Havilland. De Havilland was a famous airplane designer. He started in the military and very quickly he was enrolled in the aircraft manufacturing company to design aircraft. This is Ronald Dykstra. Ronald is a veteran KLM pilot. He's retired now and has devoted himself to the history of aviation. His home office is covered in books and drawings of flying machines from the last century. He pulled out some schematics of the DH-16. De Havilland made two civil versions, the Havilland 9, and the pilot was seated where he was, but the two passengers were placed in the open air. And with the Havilland 16, they said, we have to enclose the passengers. So uh, the fuselage was uh, widened and they put a glazing on top. They call it a glazed cockpit. The enclosed glass glazing was an early attempt at making passengers feel comfortable. Although it would be a while before anybody got heating in plush seats, let alone coffee and peanuts. As for the pilot, things were much worse. You can compare it driving in a cabriolet without a windshield and only a small windshield in front of your head. And if you move your head to the left, you feel the wind. If you move your head to the right, you feel the wind. And flying for two to four hours, no heating, you don't have anything to protect you. It's cold. And I think uh, when you're landing in Amsterdam or in London, you would like a warm drink. And also it's exhausting uh, flying uh, 100 meters above uh, the earth, looking where are you, and then flying over the channel uh, for uh, 30 kilometers, uh, only water, where am I? Amazement. The DH-16 had four interlaced passenger seats. As for the engine, well, Ronald Dykstra says it was only just okay. The first uh, engine was uh, with a Rolls-Royce Eagle, and that had 320 horsepowers. Was it enough for the job? What's enough for the job? If you compare it to nowadays, well, it was underpowered. 
Anton Plesman understood that a biplane with an open cockpit should probably skip the winter. Instead, the fledgling airline went looking for a good place to land a plane. Eventually, they settled on a small military airport called Schiphol. Back then, Europe's second biggest airport was really just a soggy, grassy field. But it was suitably close to Amsterdam. And so, Plesman scheduled the first commercial flight. Round trip from London to Amsterdam and back again. KLM had a partner back then. The London to Amsterdam route was conducted by the British carrier Aircraft Transport and Travel on May the 17th, 1920. And KLM ran the show on the flight back on the 18th. This was to be the first regularly scheduled intercity international airline service ever. Fast forward to the first leg of the round-trip flight from London to Amsterdam on the 17th of May, 1920. An Airco DH-16 piloted by British war veteran Jerry Shaw takes off from Croydon Aerodrome outside London and flew across the English Channel. A little over two hours later, under low-hanging clouds, the black dot of the DH-16 appeared ten minutes early above Schiphol Airport. The DH-16 circled, then came down, bounded a few times on the grass, and finally came to a stop. The airport may have been small, but the reception was great. On board are two journalists from British newspapers, and they have a stack of newspapers with them, and a letter from the Lord Mayor of London to the Mayor of Amsterdam, congratulating him on this wonderful occasion of this new air connection between the two capital cities. In Amsterdam, Schiphol Airport, there's a group of about 15 people waiting for the plane to land. Albert Plesman arranged for much fanfare and celebration at the arrival of KLM's first flight. Jerry Shaw springs out of the cockpit, dressed in a leather cap, goggles and a long leather coat, looking very much the dashing aviator of the era. Albert Plesman, in a black bowler hat, greets him with an outstretched arm. Shaw is shaking hands all around with the many dignitaries present, including the head of the Dutch Postal Service. The two British journalists crawl unsteadily out of the cabin and climb down the four-step ladder hanging from the fuselage. They all look up at the clouds and hope that the next day will bring sunny skies and fair winds. It was not to be. The weather on the day itself was much worse. Wind and rain, mist reported all over London, including the landing site Croydon Aerodrome. More frighteningly, visibility was poor clear across the channel. Ron Vondering says it was a bad day to fly. Yes, it was dangerous. And especially the route between Amsterdam and London. Because if you fly to Hamburg or Paris or Brussels, if they got some engine trouble, you could easily find a place to make a landing either in some of the meadows or whatever. But at sea, it's difficult. Despite the danger, Plesman gave the green light. Around midday, on the 18th of May, the plane was led out of the hangar. And it takes the same two British journalists who'd arrived the day before, who'd spent the night in a hotel in Amsterdam, plus one Dutch journalist brave enough to get on board. 
The passengers were chosen to drum up publicity, and their first Dutch passenger was named M.J. van den Bichelaar, a writer for de Maasbode, at the time the country's biggest daily newspaper. Van den Bichelaar wrote a detailed account of the trip that has all the hallmarks of a Hollywood epic. At a quarter past eleven, we drove into Schiphol in the torrential rain. In the hangar, we found Mr. Telligan, mayor of Amsterdam, present in the company of the Councillor for Public Works, there to personally hand over a letter to the pilot for the Lord Mayor of London. It was a dreary morning. The rain was falling in buckets from the blackened sky, in which billowing clouds were being driven along by the punishing west wind. We would therefore have headwind all the way. The passengers were dressed for the flight by gloves and goggles and heavy coats because it was very cold outside. And even in a cabin, it was very cold. Van den Bichelaar and the other passengers walked towards the frail-looking biplane bundled up against the elements. The four-step ladder is hanging from the open cabin door. We posed briefly for the film... The engine started and revved up. It worked! Passengers, go in, yelled Shaw, our pilot. I got in, my heart racing. We turned into the wind and the engine increased its speed. The machine bounced once and then came away from the ground. We were flying. We rode into the black sky on a rough wind, chasing the clouds. The engine heaved in a paroxysm of frenzy against the punishing wind and frantically poured into the air. The rain was torrential. It lashed through the open windows of our covered cabin, into which a trickle of water soon dripped down from above. Shaw brings the DH-16 to around 100 meters, just under the clouds, so he can see the ground. We approach the outskirts of The Hague. The wet asphalt squares shone up at us like moist eyes, the yellow spots of the trams crawled over them. A terribly neat and proper city, especially now that we were looking at it from above. It's really pouring all the way, and the airplane follows the coast right up to Calais before crossing over the channel at its shortest stretch. And it's pouring rain all the way to Calais. At some distance, billowing grey clouds hastened straight towards our aircraft. They approached, and then we were in the middle of them. The machine reared up like a ship on the waves and stuck up its nose. A bump, or should I say, a fall of a dozen meters followed and caused a disgusting feeling, as if your stomach was rising up into your throat. I was smart to neutralize the effect of the bump and started on my first peppermint that provided the welcome opportunity to chew and swallow. The weather was getting increasingly worse. The growing wind tugged our machine back and forth crying under the tension between the wings. The rain was still torrential. I was overcome with a feeling of unease, which was also significantly increased by the impossibility of being able to stand up or stretch. The pilot had to rely on visual marks. They flew relatively low altitudes so that the pilot could not lose the coastline out of his view. As we arrived at the border of Belgium and France, We have two hours and five minutes of flying time behind us. They had no weather reports. They had no radio in the beginning. 
and the instruments were not very accurate. Our channel flight was about to start, and thereby the most dangerous part of the trip. An emergency landing for our land aircraft here would have meant sinking to the bottom like a brick. In the wall of mist, in the distance, lights appeared to go on every so often. But it was the waves breaking on the English coast. After a flight of about 15 minutes, we saw the glistening chalk cliffs of the English coast ahead of us. And behind them lay the joyful openness of the English country, now struck by the brightness of the sun. The green English landscape, with the trees still in festive attire here and there, slowly glided away beneath us. From Dover, where we reached the English coast, the journey continued to Folkestone, and then took a direct route to Croydon. He flew alongside the coast to the shortest cross over the channel, then he crossed to Dover. What's the easiest way to get to London? And that is just to follow the railway to London. The last part of the trip was far from pleasant. The machine swayed again like a drunken marksman. Fell time and time again, climbed up against the wind only to be smacked down once more. The aircraft's horizontal stabilizers were in constant motion. Shaw was surely hard at work now. To everybody's surprise and a great relief of those on board, they then not only managed to cross the channel where they were supposed to, but they also managed to find London. London was covered in ground mist and it took the pilot a bit of extra flying and an extra turn around the airport to make sure that what they were seeing was actually Croydon Airport in London. We breathed more easily when we could suddenly point out to each other the large white letters stating Croydon that we could read on a beautiful field. We circled over wonderful hangars, another gust, the circle got smaller. Then the aircraft straightened up again, declined in a gliding flight, and it only took a few more seconds before the first bump on the ground followed. And another, and another one, followed by slight uplifts. And then the aircraft rolled along until just in front of the customs warehouse. The management warmly welcomed us as the first travelers from Holland. We shook Shaw's hand thanked him for his valiant work. It was rough before Folkestone, eh? He laughed. Our passports and luggage were quickly inspected. And there was a taxi waiting to take us to London. I went through the city as if I were in a dream. About four hours after my departure from Amsterdam. After all, this was the success of the new air service. The latest development in modern air transport. The triumph of aviation. The bad weather meant Calum's first flight to London took four and a half hours. Primitive, long, cold and dangerous as it was, this was a towering achievement. We live in a world where you can be in Amsterdam today and Los Angeles tomorrow. It was the pioneering spirit of people like Albert Plessman that made this possible. KLM's 1920 flight to London was a giant step towards making our huge world just a little bit smaller. Historian Mark Dietrich and Ron Vondenink agree, you cannot understate just how important this moment was. 
then there was a really sort of immediate belief that this new technology was going to create a completely new sort of world in which people would feel really connected. I certainly believe that this first flight under difficult circumstances with people almost frozen while they're crossing the channel between London and Amsterdam. With this flight, aviation started and is now so common that millions of people are traveling around the world every day and almost every city is connected with every other city in the world and can be reached in 24 hours. And that day is absolutely the start of that. KLM began regular return flights to London on the 28th of June 1920, followed by a second daily flight to Hamburg in September. By the winter break, KLM had conducted 548 flights and transported 345 passengers. Plusman went from KLM's administrator to becoming its first and longest-serving president director. This gebouw is natuurlijk niet gebouwd voor een luchtvaart van heden. Denk een jaar op acht of tien This is Albert Plesman himself speaking in Dutch to KLM personnel at the opening of a new KLM headquarters in The Hague. Here he says, this building was not constructed for today's aviation. Think in terms of eight or ten years ahead. And then, look again. We have earned a reputation for the future. When Albert Plessman died in 1953 at the age of 64, he was internationally recognized as a trailblazer who managed to realize a grand dream. He said, the ocean of the air unites all people. One wonders what KLM's first passenger, MJ van den Bechelaar, would think to hear that KLM now transports more than 20 million people a year to 161 destinations worldwide. He probably put it down to Albert Plessman's pioneering spirit, something still deeply anchored in the way KLM looks at the skies, the ocean of the air that unites all people. You've been listening to a special edition of KLM's The Journey, entitled KLM at 100 Years, The Flight That Changed Everything. Our guests were Mark Dietrichs, historian at the Huygens Institute for the History of the Netherlands, and the author of Anthony Fokker, The Flying Dutchman Who Shaped American Aviation. Ron Wunderink, KLM's communication director, now retired, and the author of Around the World with KLM and Ronald Dykstra, a former KLM pilot turned aviation historian who has provided us with schematics, including the DH-16 aircraft. You can see this and many more pictures from that time on our website, podcast.klm.com. You've been listening to The Journey, an original podcast brought to you by KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. For more background on this story and to hear more stories about the trip that changed everything, go to podcast.klm.com. And why not review us on Apple Podcasts? It helps other listeners find this podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Jonathan Gruber. <laughs>